carving a pathway of inclusion means that the promise of possibilities are realized by many and the diversity of thought is celebrated as a strength. However, for children with disabilities and racialized children, that pathway towards acceptance and inclusion isn't always realized as easy as we all might hope. Therefore, in the fifth and final episode of Inclusive Beginnings, we'll examine the experiences of racialized children from Nagin Zarifian, who is a professional learning consultant for Affiliated Services for Children and Youth. Zarifian has the experience of working on the front lines and providing some insightful perspective on the experiences of these families and also what she's witnessing as a professional in the field. Meanwhile, I also had a chance to talk with Catherine Underwood. She's a professor of Early Childhood Studies, Dimensions, Faculty Lean in the Faculty of Community Services at Toronto Metropolitan University. She also holds the title of Project Director for the IECSS Project. And she joined me to talk about an inclusive future for children with disabilities and her greatest hope for this project at large. This was a comprehensive conversation of tremendous consequence, which I am now happy to share with all of you. Fantastic. Thank you. Tell me, uh, I wonder if you could, you could take a moment to just introduce yourself to our audience and uh, tell me a little bit about your work and where you come from and why uh, you wanted to sort of participate in this project today. Absolutely. So I I currently work um, at ASCII, which is Affiliated Services for Children and Youth. My position there is a professional learning consultant, uh, which means I essentially go into programs, into early learning programs in Hamilton, Ontario, and I see myself as a resource for the educators in these programs. So um, I can provide anything from, you know, side by side uh, mentoring in the classroom. I can provide various workshops and sessions. Um, it, it's a really diverse number of resources I can bring to early learning programs. But I just see myself as a bridge, uh, if you will, from the educators to uh, resources that they might not have, you know, the time and the capacity uh, to be able to, um, I, I like to bring as many resources as I can to educators. So. In getting here, I have been a registered early childhood educator in the field for for 
many, many years. I've worked in very different uh, capacities and environments um, and communities, school age programs. Um, I've been a I've been a director of a center. I've been supervisor. Uh, so I've and like I said, in many different uh, communities, um, Burlington, Hamilton, downtown Toronto, and different areas as well. So. Um, yeah, that's what brings me here today. Um, I was connected with Catherine um, to participate in this podcast as someone who identifies as um, a racialized person with, uh, I'm physically able, that's another conversation <laughs> for another day, um, to participate in, in some perspectives on uh, Black and racialized families and children with disabilities in, in the context of early learning environments. Fabulous. Uh, Nagy, Nagy, from your perspective, tell me, how do you uh, view the concept uh, of inclusion when we talk about Black and other racialized uh, children with disabilities? That is a really uh, big word and question, and I still... Um, grapple with it and I and it's it's tough to answer because it's it is lacking in the field of early learning and early childhood education and not for um one specific reason it's not because of of this or that it's in my personal experience as an educator in the field we are lacking supports and resources to to provide um children with any type of of really physical or non-physical um special needs specialized equipment so inclusion in terms of that intersectionality piece of racialized children with disabilities i think is is a really big um it's a really big topic that word is very heavy and weighted um, because while surface level, I do think, of course, every early learning program strives and tries to be as inclusive as possible, of course, we don't, oftentimes educators, and I can only speak from personal experience, from what I've experienced in the classrooms and also what I've seen as a consultant, is we are oftentimes not equipped. We don't know how to handle physical uh, equipments and, and materials. We're often just kind of told by parents who have also, you know, are living through this experience as well, how to, how to um, you know, manage from, from transitions, physical routines, um, Oftentimes, there is not an extra person in the classroom when when these physical disabilities, you know, require a, 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 an extra body to, you know, be a part of those that transition to go outside or to come back inside. And so, while I think every educator wants to say, "Yes, we are an inclusive environment. We accept, and we are we can, you know, we are inclusive to everybody." I think that there is an absolute gap in terms of the supports and resources between the family's needs and educator resources as well. Yeah, and Megan, I know this wasn't on your original list of questions, but just out of personal curiosity, Negan, I'm curious to ask you, what do you think needs to happen to create 
an environment an environment where uh, children with disabilities have access to more social capital and allow them to sort of spread their wings from a social perspective. I'm curious, in your position as an educator, educator what do you think is the key to creating more social capital for individuals or children with disabilities? That's also a very big question. And my first um, thought is, and I don't know if this is the response you're looking for, but I, I think oftentimes social institutions, adults, general society sees children as becomings. They are not yet a person in themselves. We have to wait until they are bigger, older, you know, greater brain development. Um, whereas I think there needs to be a huge shift and pivot into the perspective of the child looking at that child regardless of who they are and and what they bring is that they are a being in and of themselves today in this very moment and how to how to promote and encourage who they are now rather than waiting for them to become something else um so <laughs> i I don't know how to exa exactly answer that question because I think there just has to be a really big pivot in shifting how people perceive young children apart. And then we're talking about the interse intersectionality piece of uh, Black and racialized children with physical disabilities as well, which is a whole other piece in and of itself and how those children can be seen and valued just as much as the other children in these learning environments. Well, I don't I, know if I answered that question, but that's kind of... Of course you did, Anna. I mean, we could uh, get a whole another hour of a podcasting <laughs> episode out of that one question, couldn't we? Yeah. Absolutely. And Megan, tell me, what do you think needs to happen to foster a more inclusive environment when it comes to early childhood education? And the system at large. So, uh, I mean, systemically speaking, we um, the systemic systemic racism is is real and alive, and shows up in harmful and dangerous ways for young children every single day. Um, I can speak as an educator, of course, because that's my my personal experience. Mm -hmm. And I can confidently say that as much as I enjoyed my two-year diploma program to, um, you know, as to, to get my early childhood education diploma and to become a registered early childhood educator, yes, there might have been a course uh, on inclusion. However, if you blinked, or missed that class or or what have you, you you would have, you know, missed that inclusion piece. And I think um again, educators, and I'm not taking away from educators because uh we do so much in a day. However, it's not it's not enough to support and meet the needs of families that are coming into our care every single day. And I think just starting by equipping educators with knowledge and information of not just the Western 
prospective family, right? Like who else is coming into our programs and into our care? And while you can't write a script for every single family and have an equation that's perfectly prepared, um, you know, for anyone who who walks into our program, I think we can be better equipped um, in in inclusive practices. And then, of course, the other uh, layer to that for me personally is that relationship building with families. I think it also has to be coming from a place of authenticity um, where you can have conversations with those families and be like, listen, you know, what are you doing at home? I'm, I'm having a hard time with, with X, Y, Z in our program. Let's collaborate together and work on this together. And you can't have those conversations unless you have already um, worked hard at building a really trusting relationship with that family. So um, there's so many layers to it, but I think those are kind of the two uh, pieces that come to the forefront for me when thinking about that question. Absolutely. And now you tell me, when we think about race and disability, how do you think they're interconnected when it comes to the early, uh, early childhood education system? And what do you think people uh, need to know on a broader scale when it comes to uh, this discussion? I mean, they are intrinsically connected. They they absolutely are. Again, children are coming as they are into your program, um, not as you wish them to be. And um, can you say the question again, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm just wondering your thoughts on how you think uh, race and uh, uh, disability are interconnected within uh, the educational system. Yeah, so so they are intrinsically connected. Um, you cannot separate one from the other because you cannot separate the person or the child that comes to you the way that they are. Um, and I hesitate to use the word complex because I don't think a child just coming into a childcare program needs to have this, you know, complex. Um, piece added to it, but I think the word complex is to the situation rather than to the child. So I do want to separate those things as well, because a child just wants to be included, loved, valued, and cared for, just like every other child. But when we bring that that racialized piece um, along with physical disabilities, there comes challenges with again, on top of social institutions and, and and the systems piece above, like trickling so far up above, I'm seeing it from the ground up because that's where I come from. I'm an educator that's been in the field and on the floor for so many years. And all I want to do is support these families and support these children. But sometimes I don't feel equipped um, to know how, and, and that's a shortcoming on me. As, as an educator, but it's also a shortcoming on, on the larger system in itself. And I never want it to feel a shortcoming from the family or from the child. And I think that's ultimately what happens from time to time, a lot of the time, unfortunately. Um, and speaking as a racialized person, I don't have children of my own, but I often reflect on my mom's experience 
as me, a small child who didn't speak any English, um, starting in childcare, who looked a little different than other children, brought different types of lunches and food. Um, I do actually remember, apart from my mom's, um, you know, retelling of stories, being being um, othered from time to time. And that's me not coming from, you know, I, I am racialized, but I'm not black and I'm physically able. So if I'm being othered, I can only imagine um, the challenges that black children and families with physical disabilities experience on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so let's dive into those uh, challenges when it comes to racialized uh, children and their families. Uh, what sort of challenges uh, uh, do you see? And, and uh, what's your greatest hope for the future of uh, children as we uh, continue to advocate for inclusion for children with disabilities and their families at large. So it's kind of a two-part uh, question to end on, but I'm uh, fascinated to get your thoughts there. So I think just uh, shining a light and illuminating the conversations that we are having now, the, the work and research that is being done, I think is is um, a, a really important piece that's that's again bringing it bringing it to the surface because why aren't children who are racialized and black with physical disabilities not being cared for and valued the same way right again we can have another podcast and talk systemically um about about why that is but in in the context of of early learning programs for so for instance our physical environment is what it is. We can't really change walls. We can't reconstruct. We can move some furniture around, but that's about it. So if a child with a physical disability starts in our program tomorrow, it is essentially up to myself and my room partners how to make this physical environment work for this child. It, it wasn't ready for that child up until they registered and started in our room. There was not a lot of um, prep time, if you will. You know, the, the child may or may not have come for, for a visit for a short period of time. And I just must think, how must that child feel with when they're coming into a physical environment that is not suited for them? And it is suited for, for physical physically able children. And the adaptations that are perhaps being made are so... Um, I don't know what the word is, you know, MacGyvered, if you will, <laughs> that we're just making it work to the best of our knowledge, to the best of our ability. Um, is the is the family's voice being heard in, in these situations? And that's where I think maybe that racialized piece comes into play, right? Um, the perspectives and the experience of the educators, all these things play a part in the experience of that child in this room and 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 I do, I do get sad thinking about, you know, I, I, I do think back and reflect on my time, you know, in some, in some situations where I know I was not equipped for this and I wish I could do more and I did not know more. Um, but what I could do was, again, build that relationship with that family and, and hope and feel that they were seen and heard and experienced some sense of belonging. 
as we figure this out together. But I don't think the responsibility should always be on the family as well to, to, to walk us through this and work through this process. And I'm not negating the fact that there are external resources that do come in and support educators. There are absolutely programs and resources out there. So I don't want it to seem like I, I'm um, not acknowledging that. But day to day, hour by hour, it is the the educators in the classroom that are that are doing their best. So those are absolutely some challenges. And and in terms of moving forward, I would love to see um, more inclusive um, conversations and and classes and and concepts and and you know topics being um, introduced and discussed in the two year diploma program. Um, just to be responsive to the community to to today's. Uh, population, um, as well as, again, uh, shedding light, illuminating uh, people, voices who have experienced this um, uh, moving forward and, and hearing what they have to say and listening to them and responding um, and, and making those changes. Absolutely. Well, uh, Megan, I want to thank you for, for participating and adding your voice and contributing to this most important conversation. I want to uh, uh, thank you for your work and uh, advocating for equality and equity for uh, children with disabilities. And I want to uh, thank you for, for uh, engaging in conversation with me this morning. It's most appreciated. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, uh, Catherine, it's always great to see you. And, and thanks so very much for adding your voice to the podcast portion of our uh, conversation about equity and equality for uh, children with disabilities and all the work that you've done throughout this project. It's always great to see you. And good morning to you. So thank you so much, Kevin, and thank you for this podcast series because it's been so exciting to see, uh, to, to listen to all of the different voices that are being added to it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're adding yours this morning. And I just wanted uh, you, to, you to begin by telling me a little bit about yourself, your role on the project at large, and why it's so vitally important to continue continuing uh, the conversation towards progress. Thank you. So um, I'm the project director for the Inclusive Early Childhood Service System Project. I'm also a professor in the School of Early Childhood Studies at Toronto Metropolitan University. And my role has been to implement a research project that was actually designed by our community partners more than 10 years ago. So at that time, we had a very small grant and we invited uh, people from a few different communities, uh, Wellington County, the city of Hamilton, where Negan works, um, and uh, the district of Temiskaming in Northern Ontario came together at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University, and at that time Ryerson, um, to talk about concerns they had with, within their own work to implement early childhood service systems and one of the areas that they identified was supporting children with disabilities and creating inclusive child care and and other early childhood education and care programs and that group of people 
told us at that or told me at that time that they really needed research that did a few things. First of all, they needed more research that was from the perspective of families. They felt that was the most important voice for them in terms of planning uh, high quality inclusive programs. They told us that they needed information that unfolded over time because most research that's done in early childhood, because early childhood is short, it's mostly done with single time points. So we'll measure children's development, we'll talk to educators, we'll talk to families, but we mostly do it once. And they, those community partners said, we know that this is a time of dramatic change, both for children and families, but also, and Negan referred to some of these changes in our, in our society, but also in how services are provided. So right now in, in the early years, we're seeing changes with regards to $10 a day childcare unfolding across the country. We're seeing changes that are direct result of COVID-19 with uh, very real shortages of early childhood educators with concerns about the wages for educators. These are all things that matter. Um, but when we first started, the biggest concern had to do with changes to family support programs and the unfolding of full day kindergarten. So our earliest interviews were pre full day kindergarten, which might be hard to remember at this time. But um, so my job has been to implement this project in the to the best of my ability with the direction of those community partners um, and i take that pretty seriously we also have some advisory committees who i work with directly on a regular basis including the district of Temiskaming elders council uh, who are a group of elders from multiple nations in northern ontario who've helped us to really think through uh, settler colonialism and uh, the ways our systems were developed through Europe, Eurocentric ways of thinking. Um, and that's been really important to our project. So that's my role. And in addition to that, my role is to steward the information that's been shared with us from families. So through the IECSS project, we have more than 150 families who have participated now from nine communities across the country. And uh, um, some of those people have participated for up to nine years. We've conducted over a thousand interviews. So that's kind of amazing to think about the quantity of information we hold. And that data set is something that we now have a responsibility to use for the purposes that Negan identified, which is to support early childhood systems. Uh, with that as a backdrop, Catherine, I'm, I'm curious to ask, as to your definition of inclusion for black, black and racialized uh, children with uh, disabilities, how do you uh, define the concept of inclusion? Thanks for that question, Kevin. Um, so I use um, what some people refer to, uh, actually an author called Anat Greenstein from, from Europe calls radical inclusion. And for me, um, radical inclusion means that we don't just take people and put them into programs that exist for everybody else. The problem for me with inclusion, and um, as Megan mentioned, people have been trying to do inclusion for years. In this country, we've been talking about inclusion for close to 100 years. 
I think that part of why many children are not, still not successfully participating in their communities and in the programs that we have is because we have been trying to assimilate them into programs that were not designed for them in the first place. And I think that that has to do with disability. And I very much believe that it is intersectional, both with race, but also with economic well-being. Uh, without a doubt, poverty is a very big risk factor for whether or not children will participate in early childhood programs, but also in early intervention programs that are that are designed for children with disabilities. So to me, inclusion is full participation in the places and spaces where you want to participate. I think that that means that we need to consider the question of inclusion into what? So I think that we want to include children into places where they're able to play and build relationships with their neighbors, but also with people who have shared lived experience because disability can be an important part of somebody's identity and also with their racial, ethnic and linguistic communities. And that means that the, all of those spaces need to be accessible both physically, but also emotionally. Um, and with regards to, um, to uh, recognition of racism and classism. Yeah, absolutely. And from a, Educational uh, perspective, Catherine. I'm, I'm curious, what, what do you think needs to happen to create a more inclusive environment for Black and racialized children with disabilities and, or, uh, to thrive when it comes to uh, the educational system at large? What do you think are the keys there as well? So I really think that we have not grappled with what true intersectionality looks like in the everyday experiences of early childhood and also school school aged educational environments. So as an example, um, in our research, we have found that disability services that are screening for developmental, uh, um, non-normative development in children so that they can qualify for disability services. Those screening metrics or those doc the documentation that's produced in that screening has been used to surveil families and to define families as not being good educational or developmentally appropriate spaces for them. And that information is in part um, or is implicated in the reality that more Black and Indigenous children are being apprehended in child protection systems. So that's a, that's a very concrete example of how that plays out. But we also know that, um, and our Black Advisory Committee has been really clear in articulating some of this, but I think that we've heard this also from research participants, that if you have a child who has what people sometimes describe as an invisible disability, although I, I'm always a bit, I don't think there's two separate and very distinct categories. Visibility can be come from someone's emotional state as well. But as an example, you might have a child who's autistic, who in public looks not normative in the sense that they might be moving their hands in a particular way or speaking in a particular way that is perceived to be not like other children. If someone is black or racialized, that can be much higher risk than if that child is white, because we do have 
ways in which we police other people's behavior. And families also can be perceived to not be good parents if their child is acting in a way that's not considered to be normative. So then their parents are also in a situation where they're being perceived to not have their children under control. Um, we, we need to think about things like our perception of what is good and bad behavior, because it is driven by um, very normative ways of thinking about human behavior. Yeah, Catherine, tell me, how do you think race and disability are interconnect, interconnected within this system? Well, what do you think uh, our viewers or audience should know about that? Well, I think they're interconnected in a few ways. First of all, racism causes harm to people and can cause, and can cause harm to children. Racism can lead to very real health impacts. So that's one way that it's interconnected. Secondarily, all people, there, are, there is disability across all of our society. So disability is in fact normal. Human difference is normal. It is a natural part of how um, human beings uh, are. Um, the reality is that we often talk about disability as being separate from the other conversations that we're having about equity and equality in our society. So I really think that we need to focus on the equity portion of our understanding around disability. And that requires us to consider it in relation to other forms of, of inequality and inequity. So for the most part, our conversations around disability are tied into people getting service. The idea is that if people have enough service, then they won't be disabled. And that actually is a kind of ableist attitude, because especially in the early years, many of these services are designed as interventions to try and make children's development as normal as possible. And of course, not many children will not become normal simply because they've interacted with service systems, nor do we want them to. Because the joy in life is our human difference. The value of people seeing and understanding the world from a wide variety of experiences is so important to both our society's well-being, but also the health of individuals. And when we talk about uh, inclusion from the perspective of Black families in particular, I'm wondering your thoughts on how we level the playing field for uh, black families and their children with disabilities to make sure that there's an equal footing and that they have a chance to thrive within our educational system and beyond. Thanks, Kevin. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm glad that you are here because I am a white European woman, person of European heritage. So I'm not, I will not speak for black families, but so I welcome your thoughts on that. But um, I will say that from the perspective of families in this study, um, I think there's some things that we can look at systemically. So the IUCSS project, while we interview families and hear their stories, our goal is to actually study the system itself. So Negan referenced systemic discrimination. We're interested in how this system is designed. So I think that's one of the answers. It's only one of the answers though, that we can look at the design of this system and say, what is happening in the way this system is designed that is perpetuating ableism and racism? 
One of the things is that it is a very complex system. It is not that the children and their families are complex. The system itself is very complex. We have created societies where people are interacting with bureaucracy all day, every day. And that is more so for disabled people because many services require them to have some kind of intake process in order to qualify for special things so they can participate because those things were not designed for them in the first place. And we can think about that with relation to physical disability. Negan's example of a child registering for a program that physically is not designed for them. That's true about many other aspects about the, of those programs as well. So if we can start designing from the outset for a wider range of people, then we will reduce the need to go through bureaucratic processes for people to participate. I think the second thing is that most of the work we do around education zones in on classrooms or, or rooms in childcare centers or rooms in family support programs, like drop-in programs. But the reality is that for families, even if you have a single classroom that's highly inclusive, they may be experiencing exclusion in many other environments. So I think we need to look at inclusion as something that happens across community rather than simply within single programs. And that's a lot to ask of educators. I don't expect educators to solve all um, of our social challenges that we face based on many, many factors. However, having greater awareness of that can bring greater empathy to the relationships that people hold. And Megan mentioned that this is highly relational. It's so important to build authentic relationships with families, but we need to recognize our own social identities when we do that. And we need to recognize that our social identities matter. So the three of us can all have really good social relationships, but we still hold our identities. And that affects how we interact with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I just have a, a personal curiosity, and I think this will, would bring more length to our conversation this morning. I'm curious your definition of sort of educational equality and equity for children with disabilities and how you define educational equity and equality. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm going to think for a second. Well, okay, I'll say, I'm, I'm not sure that I have a, an answer. I think that that's quite individual, actually. So I mentioned when I was defining inclusion, I would say that it has to involve people being included into the spaces where they want to be included. I work in a university, so I will tell you that I am influenced by the writing of Amartya Sen and Indian uh, economist who talks about something called capability theory. His articulation of capability, human capability is that it is highly contextual. So it matters if your gender matters, but it might matter more in one place than another place. Your race matters, but what it means to be a Black person in Yellowknife Northwest Territories versus being a Black person in a place where the dominant race is black would be different. Um, so I think that that's part of, it, it's part of our understanding of equity and equality that it needs to be highly contextualized. 
and I'll, it, it, this makes me think, I wasn't going to talk about it. This, this is an idea that I didn't know I was going to talk about today, but um, we actually have an international advisory committee on the ICSS project. And that arose because my colleague, Marisol Angarita Moreno from Colombia, who I met through a, um, uh, an international conference I was attending, I was presenting and she approached me and said, oh, I love this project. Can you come to Colombia, to Bogota, and do this project in Bogota? And I was a bit shocked. I was like, what? Really? First of all, I was flattered. I was like, oh, we're doing such good work. People are interested. And secondly, I thought, but what would this look like in another community? Because as I mentioned, it was designed. It came from the interests of our community partners. So there's aspects of what we're doing that I think could be of value elsewhere. Um, but we've been working with our international advisory committee to ask them, what would this look like in another country? And one of our newer international advisory committee members is from Ghana. And uh, she, she has lived in Toronto. She's spent a lot of time in Canada, but she's now working at the University of Ghana. And, I've, and I'm interested in like, what would be a value there that would genuinely be a value? So I think one of the things that we are doing is mapping out these systems and that would look different in different places. And I think that would matter in terms of defining equity and equality. What does it look like to get access to education in a place like Canada, where we have one of the most educated populations on earth, as compared to in a place where the average person does not complete elementary education? I think we need to consider that in relation to each other. So there's a global conversation to be had about equity. We are tremendously privileged here in Canada in so many ways, but we also do not have equitable or equal access to, to this privilege that we hold in this country. Yeah, as we bring our conversation to a close, Catherine, I'm curious to ask you, what, what do you see as the greatest uh, challenges ahead for black and racialized families with children with disabilities. So what's your greatest hope for the future and how do you hope this project will evolve over time? Uh, so first of all, I think um, the specific experiences of racialized and black families with relation to disability services, I think um, the challenge is to all of us and this is why I think that it's important that people who look like me, who are white, are part of that conversation. I'm not speaking on behalf of racialized people or black people, but I have to be part of the ways in which we think about this going forward, because we need to start talking about how intersectional identities unfold in, in real and concrete ways. Because I think for many people, this is kind of a conversation that they know in their minds is true, but they can't really imagine what it looks like in the everyday activities that they engage in. So having very concrete examples can help people to understand that. And I think that's something we need to think about going forward. Um, I think that Negan identified some of the, the other challenges with relation to, for example, having good education for early childhood educators. The majority of what we're teaching people in schools doesn't really get to this 
you know, my notion of radical inclusive education, like a really comprehensive understanding of how disability can touch every aspect of someone's life. And sometimes in very good ways, most people are really uncomfortable with the term disability, especially when they're talking about the youngest children. But some of those young children are going to grow up to be disabled adults. And if we're saying that that word is a bad word, then we're not allowing those people to grow up and flourish with an identity that's valued and celebrated and a recognition that disability can actually be a cultural experience. It can be a way that you connect to other people in good ways. So two people who have a shared disability identity might actually find friendship with each other. That does not mean that they need to be congregated together, together with only people who have the same disability diagnosis as them. Um, but I will say that I'm excited about the idea that this more than 10 years of research that we've been doing, you asked me, Kevin, about the future, future plans for the project. Our goal is actually to start shifting towards not just collecting more information from parents, but actually looking at projects that allow us to activate that information. We hope that we can, uh, and we've done a little bit of this work already. We've worked with some of our partners in a, in a project we called IECSS in Action. Um, we had seven partners from across the country who responded to a call out to try and address some of the problems that we've seen uh, from the perspective of families. We're looking to do more of that kind of work going forward. We're also really interested in curriculum. So, um, uh, building more comprehensive information to make it available for people teaching in higher education, but also for people doing professional development within their workplaces so that they can be having those conversations locally um, and, and looking in their own spaces in a truthful way that isn't defensive, that says we're all part of this society, we're all part of trying to create a better place for, for people. And sometimes also having the humility to know when we are not the people to be having the conversation, but stepping back and giving space to others. And I will say, we often in the early years talk about asking families for their opinions, their views, that they are a critical resource. Our project tells us that there's a lot of pressure on parents because they're having to do so much work on behalf of this system. I do want us to continue to ask parents, but parents need more support themselves. And one of the very underutilized resources that we have in our society is disabled people. We almost never say, oh, inclusion is difficult. Let's talk to disabled people. We almost always say, ask the parents. <laughs> and I think that's something we need to start. I think we need to start shifting towards um, thinking about inclusion as a disability question. And if we're going to get at equity, we better start actually talking to disabled people themselves. Well, absolutely. Well, Catherine, I want to thank you for your extensive work in promoting the need for inclusion and uh, early childhood education. And I want to uh, thank you for contributing your uh, voice to uh, contributing to moving the needle of of progress forward, your work in the space, and how on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here this morning. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. We thank you for investing the time in absorbing all of the critically important 
information this podcast series had to share. It's our hope that the information you gathered through this series will help us all continue to contribute towards the conversation of progress for children with disabilities, their families, and our societal understanding of their upbringing and service delivery as well. I'm Kevin McShann, and I thank you for your time and consideration.